0: You ever see uh, De Niro in Taxi Driver or Andy Kaufman in the sitcom Taxi? You ever see DC Cab with Mr. T? Cabbies are like their own basket of tropes containing, I guess, the original incel psychopath, but also, of course, the lovable, reckless driving foreigner with an inscrutable accent. I have a couple of thoughts on that. One, all of those cliches depict cabbies in big U.S. cities can't really think of anything about a small-town cabbie or any media representations of Canadian cabbies. Second thought, is the whole cabbie trope kind of over? You know, gone the way of payphones and milkmen, a way to instantly date a movie or TV show. Just what kind of a world are we returning to? And what kind of reductive cliches does it offer for hacky screenwriters going forward? Those are not the concerns of Marcello DeSintio, journalist who has written a book called Driven, The Secret Lives of Taxi Drivers. Marcello wanted to simply cross the divide that exists between the front and back seats of these unique private public spaces that are the interiors of taxi cabs. He wanted to talk to actual Canadian cab drivers to see who they really are and what kind of true life stories they have to tell. And he found some amazing stories. And today, because, you know, why the hell not, I will talk to Marcello DiCintio and to some of the cabbies who he met. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Taylor Hassana, Frank Serena, Jeff McDonald, Fane Say, Corey Price, Carl Weeb. Daniel Hoyle and Luke. Hi, this is Luke. I'm a master's student living in Toronto, Ontario, and I support Canada Lands because I really appreciate the thoughtful and diverse guests that they have on that bring a wide range of perspectives and biases, which are sometimes called out, but always in a respectful and constructive way. Canada Lands has taught me to think critically of the perspectives I am and am
1: not seeing in the media conversations, and I love everything they do. <laughs>
2: My name is Michael Kamara, I'm from Sierra Leone in West Africa, and uh, I'm here in Canada, Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm a taxi driver.
3: Somehow uh, I fell into that taxi business because on a chance discussion with my wife, she said to me, well, you want your own business, why don't you buy a taxi? She had no idea what the cost is.
4: I started driving in May of 2008. One of the things I've learned about myself is I like variety. I don't like doing the same thing over and over. You meet different people all the time. You get to meet people that you never would have met, and you have some pretty fascinating conversations. And you see the entire spectrum of humanity in, inside that cab, right? So you see the from the worst to the best.
0: Marcello, you write that the cliches of taxi noir don't appeal to you. Why not? You're not interested in, in crime and violence and, and drunk passengers having sex? Well, like, Why why write a book about cabbies if that stuff doesn't interest you?
1: <laughs> oh, let me be clear. That stuff interests me. I just feel that those were stories that we already know. Those are kind of the cliches of taxi stories that we've seen in movies and we've seen on, on TV shows and, and we've seen in pornography In this book, just like all my other books, I'm I'm trying to find stories that I hadn't heard before.
3: I'm a very young child survivor, having born in 1942, and the Holocaust uh, started before I was born and ended when I was two and a half years old in 1945.
2: There was a lot of killing, burning houses. It was the day that many lives go, and it was the day that...
4: Many people lose part of their body. For me, I lose my left leg. I have 12 brothers and sisters, so it was a large family, and and, uh, my father was a primitive Baptist preacher. He also went back and got his law degree at the Washburn Law School there in Topeka. And, uh, you know, it was a very small church because he had had uh, run off most of the parishioners when the church first got started. So it was just my family and and uh, two other small families that attended there over the years that we were going there. And we just grew up with that theology. It was, you know, Calvinism is, is the theology that he preached. And um, you know, to us, it was normal.
0: You also write that you're not interested in the cliche of the overeducated immigrant taxi driver who was a doctor or a dentist or an engineer in their home country, but their credentials aren't recognized here. That's a cliche because it's true, no?
1: It is a cliche because it's true. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, in the research, I found that I think there's more PhD holding cab drivers in Toronto than anywhere else in the world. But again, it goes down to, are these stories we have heard before? You know, I was really looking for things that were surprising, uh, kind of unexpected life histories. And that's the most expected one. You know, when I mentioned to friends that I was writing a book about the lives of taxi drivers in Canada, their first comment was always, how many doctors did you meet? And the answer in the end ended up being not very many, which was just fine with me because the stories that I did find were far more surprising than just the cabbie cardiologist.
0: All right. So tell me something I don't know. Like, what did you find that surprised you? Well, you know,
1: all the drivers I talked to had these multi-layered life histories that kind of spanned countries, spanned eras. And one thing that they all had in common was all these men and women, they're this kind of practical genius to them. Regardless of if they escaped, you know, from behind the Iron Curtain out of Czechoslovakia, like one driver did, or if they managed to avoid prosecution in the Iraqi military courts, like another driver did. Or they just simply managed to kind of solve the algorithm of how to build a life for themselves and their family while doing you know, shitty, low-paying jobs in Calgary. All these drivers I spoke to, they had figured stuff out. They were like these chess masters of their own lives and always in surprising ways. And so that was what really struck me at the end of the project was just the brains behind these people.
0: Well, I mean, that itself might be a bit of a trope, but it's one that appeals to me. I connect and I like the idea anyhow, to the degree to which it's true we can explore. I like the idea of the cabbie as somebody who's like new here, but is like doing it their own way. Yeah. And is an entrepreneur and they're just kind of free and they're on the road and they make their own hours and they're off having adventures and they may even have equity in a way. But they're kind of like an important urban figure in my conception of a city. And I'd like to think that I live in a world or at least a city where that's true.
1: You are for now. I mean, a lot of the drivers I talked to see the end of the industry. Some of the drivers I talked to said within five years, they believe that the traditional taxi industry will be gone. It it, will have been killed off by the app-based services, right? Like Uber and Lyft.
2: They brought Uber in Halifax a year ago, and it affects us in the business. But before, the business was good. But I don't blame Huber much. It's more the coronavirus, because the coronavirus make everything down. Even Huber, they are still struggling to make money. I can assure you this business, within five years, it's going to be bad.
3: For all intents and purposes, Uber eradicated the taxi business and I'm part of the original group of people who are taking the city of Toronto to court for 1.7 billion dollars for negligence by allowing Uber to come into our hitherto protected business.
4: The way I understand it is these ride sharing services can't function in these smaller communities because they can't get enough drivers to Fit that model that they use uh in some of the bigger cities right so I don't see them coming here for a long time I mean unless Cranbrook grows to uh you know 100,000 or better plus BC the way they're managing it they, they only let them in about a year and a half ago and they only let them in certain areas and every time they try to expand then they have to get you know go through the transportation department and and have a lot of hearings and Plus, they've got tighter requirements as far as what, what you need to do to be able to drive for one of these rideshares. So, I don't know. It's a different animal out here. It's, it's the same services, but you're not going to see them in these small communities.
0: So, give me a few highlights. Tell me briefly about some of the stories that you found worthy of inclusion in the book and that you found personally fascinating.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I could talk about these guys all day long. I think the driver I found most fascinating was a guy named Mo, who I met in Halifax. Now Mo was born and raised in in Iraq. He's a big guy, he was a wrestling champion, always the biggest guy in the room. Mo fought two wars for Saddam Hussein in his younger days, one against the Iranians and one against the Americans. He suffers incredible PTSD from his time on those battlefields. And he's this big bruising bully of a guy, but at the same time, he always wanted to be an artist. He had this kind of unexpected sensitivity about him that he, he wanted to draw. At the same time, he had to avoid court-martial because he beat the shit out of one of his superior officers at one time and spent a year hiding from the authorities until finally spending time in an Iraqi military prison before ending up in Halifax, where he went to art school, of all places. He never fit in at art school, as you can well imagine, and, and, and ended up driving cab after, after a lot of other businesses ended up driving cab. Now, Mo, he's an arrogant guy. At the same time, he understands... That the mistakes that he made in his life. i have never met anyone so self-aware of their own failings as Mo. And he was one of the most fascinating guys I met during my time there. I met Michael Kamara, who also is in Halifax now, who had lost his leg during the Sierra Leonean Civil War and helped found that country's first amputee soccer
2: team. And we are the first people in West Africa to form amputee football team. Before I leave the club, Oh, I live from Sierra Leone. I went to England, I played. I went to Russian. I played. I went to Ghana, I went to Liberia, I went to Brazil before I come to Canada, finally. I met a Holocaust survivor from Hungary.
3: The non-is-too-many was something that I was completely unaware of. So in 1957, when Canada chose to accept us, we were welcomed. We really and truly got... A culture shock as to what the life was for us newcomers versus the life that existed in our old home. I met a guy
1: named Alex who escaped with his wife and young daughter out of Czechoslovakia during the Cold War, ending up in a refugee camp before finding his way to Edmonton, where he literally fought off a knife-wielding passenger a few years ago and kind of barely survived this attack. So these men and women I spoke to had far more interesting stories than what happens in their back seats or, you know, I used to be a doctor in Bangladesh and now I'm driving cab.
0: Can you talk a bit about Nate Phelps? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So Nathan Phelps is the son of Fred Phelps, the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church that that your listeners will recognize from the, the God hates f**k pickets that they do uh, in front of funerals. The
0: Westboro guy with the signs, the the horrible bigot. His son is a Canadian cabbie? Yep. Where?
1: Where? Where, where is he? He's in Cranbrook now. He, he I met him first in Calgary. He's in Cranbrook now driving cab. He escaped from the Westboro Baptist Church the second the clock struck midnight on his 18th birthday. The moment he couldn't be dragged back by the authorities,
4: he left. To get to that point where I made the decision that I was going to leave, I was 16... One of my older brothers had managed to actually leave and stay gone, so that was the first time that it actually occurred to me that it was possible to even do. It just felt like we were stuck there, right? That was the first hurdle I had to overcome. The second one was this belief that my father had preached that Christ was going to return somewhere around the year 2000, and if I left, I knew that I was going to be kicked out of the church, and therefore, um, I was going to go to hell, so... Uh, there was that significant part in my mind where I believed that I was going to leave and I was going to have, until I was 42 years old, to live the you know, life the way I wanted to live it. And then Christ was going to return and I was going to go to hell. And
1: he was convinced, even in leaving, that God would eventually strike him down. It took him a long time to realize that he was not going to be struck by lightning because he abandoned the horrible faith of his father and his, and his family.
4: It never even occurred to me to perceive the environment I grew up in as anything but what we heard, that we were bad, that we were evil, that we were going to go to hell until I was away from it for a while. And then I, a lot of it was you know, spending time with my older brother Mark and doing a lot of reading and talking to people who were in uh, the religious community and starting to understand that there were as many interpretations of the Bible as there were humans out there. Um, Plus, on two different occasions, I spent a total of about two and a half years with counselors. And he's become,
1: instead, this sought-after spokesperson for LGBTQ rights, as well as atheism. He does atheist talks and TED talks and this sort of thing.
4: Well, I I do talk about what it was like going up there. I talk about child abuse in all of its forms. I talk about what I had learned and understood now about not only what, what I believe the Bible does say about homosexuality, but more importantly, I don't think that the Bible is any longer a, a source of, of moral ideas that we should be using to make decisions about how we treat other people.
1: And he made his way up to Canada a little while ago, and now drives a cab in Cranbrook.
0: If you get into a cab in Cranbrook, you might be driven by the son of the Westboro Baptist Church. That's incredible. How about Andy Reddy?
1: Andy Reddy is a Holocaust survivor. Andy Reddy was two years old, I believe, when the Nazis rolled into Hungary during the Second World War.
3: It was really and truly uh, a genocide. And the fact that six million brothers and sisters were murdered speaks for itself. His father had died in the camps. And at two years old, he
1: vaguely remembers what had happened during that time. His mother saved him from death and he grew up to be like a swim champion in Hungary and always wanted to be in the Olympic team.
3: I had a pretty good life. I was training to be an Olympic caliber swimmer. I was a reasonably good student. I was engaged in a lot of activities that the communist system uh, fostered for young people to do. I left Hungary in October of 1956 till I saw a swimming pool in Canada sometime in March or April of 1957. A lot of time has lapsed in the career of a Athlete. So the fact that I couldn't practice and I was out of practice and I was out of condition, it was something that uh, just couldn't be made up unless I was in a pool twice a day like I used to be. And that was just not a possibility. However, I became a swimming instructor for over 30 years and I passed on my knowledge and experience to others.
1: And now Andy gives talks uh, for the Holocaust Remembrance. And uh, he works with the Simon Weisenthal Foundation, and he's been a big combatant against the, the city of Toronto.
3: But taxi business has been decimated with a triple blow: Uber, insurance, and the pandemic. So we really and truly were uh, up against uh, a lot of enemies. But the interesting part is, I am not as upset with Uber as I am with the low life uncaring politicians with the leadership of, John, Uber is here to stay Tory. I can't stand that guy. He was the one who allowed uh, Uber to uh, get a foothold here in Toronto.
0: It's like an old guard of cabbie that you don't see very often anymore. Yeah, that's true. Career cabbies, and and frankly, like old men, uh, that that used to be kind of commonplace, and I, I don't see it so much anymore.
1: No and I think it's going to be less and less you know I, I, you know, it used to be you know even even a handful of years ago where driving cab was a a reliable kind of landing pad for new Canadians you know they could find work reliable work doing that and I met people who built houses and, and, and put their kids through university just driving long hours but but managing to do it by pushing cab and um you know I don't think that's I don't think that's as a reliable source of income for new Canadians as, as it used to be
0: can we talk about white cabbies of Canada for a minute? Okay. I don't have any like particular uh, thesis on this. It's just something that like I note when I'm outside of Toronto, it's a very different profile of who becomes a cabbie. It's like somebody's retirement job, like some like grandfatherly kind of character it might be my cabbie in a smaller city. And it's not a vocation, like it's, it doesn't seem like an industry in the same way. And then once, when I was driving uh, from the airport in Vancouver, and of course it goes through Richmond, there was this older white cabbie who just assumed that he could bro down with me on some anti-Asian racism. One encounters racism from time to time. It was interesting to me that he would make the assumption that that was something that he and I could connect on. Having met me five minutes earlier, this is not something that I would have experienced or haven't experienced in Toronto. But I, I have kind of just noted that, like, the dynamics and the profile of who drives me around is very different, depending on which part of Canada I'm in.
1: That's interesting. I mean, it's not just Toronto. Like, I, I, C- Calgary's cabbies, are, they're all drivers of, drivers of colour. Winnipeg, it's something like 80% are Punjabis. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not just... South Asians, it's from a particular part of India, the vast majority of cabbies. I'm surprised you got a, you got a white guy coming out of the Vancouver airport, to be perfectly honest. Um, even in Yellowknife, even in Yellowknife, it was all drivers of color and only one indigenous guy. So it was all uh, drivers from Africa and, and South Asia up there, too.
0: So for you, was this just like, there are interesting people everywhere and this is a way to meet some of them? Um, or was there something specific about cabbies?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think part of it has to go to being in close quarters with a stranger. I'm a travel writer. And as a travel writer, I have a, a fraught relationship with with taxi drivers. You know, taxi drivers are the, are the people I argue with when I'm overseas, that I'm getting into fights over the fare, especially places that I travel, you know, in the Middle East and South Asia and Africa, where there's no meters and the end of every cab ride ends in an argument. And the idea that I would look for stories there was not a natural thing for me. But... As a travel writer, it's hard to imagine a job where you spend all day traveling but never go anywhere, too. Like, that, that, seemed, that seemed to be like the worst possible scenario. And so all those sort of elements made the cabbie a more interesting character in our country than a fry cook mm-hmm. or the person serving the coffee at Tim Hortons. Not that they have any less interesting stories. It's just the environment that we meet, that kind of personal geography is so different.
0: One thing that's interesting is that you know here's somebody who, on the one hand, might be a newcomer to uh, your country; on the other hand, probably knows your city way better than you do. <laughs> Absolutely, and ma- and meets way more people and has a better sense of what's actually going on at different hours of the day, and also knows where the good food is at.
1: Yes, and it's funny. All drivers will say that. I mean, the, the, one, the one other thing that the drivers had in common is they all have this kind of arrogance about them, right? Like, they, they know more than you about just about everything. They know more about the city you may have been born and grown up in. They know where the good food is. They know what goes on after hours that you have no idea about. But they they also, they know psychology of the citizens better than we do. These drivers would talk to me about how they could—they can size up a passenger from a block away, you know, if that, if, if that person's going to be trouble in the backseat. They have this sixth sense of, about the citizens of the city in a way that maybe you and I don't.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help, and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself... And because you listen to the show, you get ten percent off of your first month at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. Once again, it's BetterH.E.L.P.com. along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2, along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com canadaland Canada Land. That is drinkag1.com drinkag1.com/Canadaland. Canada Land. Check it out. Marcello, is this book an attempt to bridge the silence that exists between drivers and their cabbies?
1: That's a great question. I don't know if my intention was to bridge the silence. I don't necessarily think that everyone should jump in their cab and ask their driver for their life story the way that I had done, right? You know, people are private, you know, just because they're driving a cab doesn't mean that they're not, it doesn't mean they, they want to reveal all to, to some stranger in the backseat. However, I would like for this book to bridge the, or just to, to acknowledge the fact that in this country, we are surrounded by people with amazing epic stories, It's a cliche to say that everyone contains multitudes, but honestly, talking to these drivers and hearing about their multifaceted, amazing, bonkers lives, it gives me a lot of joy. And just knowing that everywhere I go, I'm surrounded by stories like that, even if I don't hear them, but just knowing that I'm constantly surrounded by these amazing lives, that means a lot to me. And that makes me very happy. And I think that maybe that's enough. Maybe it's enough to know the stories that are around us.
0: I don't mean to romanticize this, by the way. You know, the taxi experience can be pretty miserable. And we're going to talk about Uber, how it's going to, you know, how it's ruining the economy of things. In a lot of ways, Uber succeeded and Lyft and the others because the experience is better. I still like just hopping out without paying. I mean, I know that I have paid, but the fact that you don't have to do that interaction, it makes me feel like James Bond, I just like roll out of a car. But you know, the cars are often nicer and cleaner, and they're they, you know they're like at least in the early days of those services, they, they, they're more interested in what music you want to hear. And there wasn't that hardened lifer. A, a lot of these people felt like they're like a bit more open and fun. Sometimes when in traveling, I, I had better experiences with those type of gig economy drivers than with cabbies who, who seem pretty indifferent.
1: Yeah, and I've heard, the, I've heard the opposite as well. I don't think it's a different kind. Of, and maybe at the beginning, as you're saying, Jesse, but I'm not sure if it's now a different kind of driver in an Uber than it is in a cab. A lot of Uber drivers used to drive cabs. They, they just felt that there's more money to be made in Uber. Now, I don't know if that's true. If it was true, I suspect it's getting less and less true. But I think you're right. I, th- I think the experience, people found Uber more attractive in a lot of different ways. You mentioned the, the just rolling out and having kind of paid on the app. A lot of people I spoke to also like the idea that you rate your drivers. Some of my women friends find this very helpful. You know, they don't, they don't want to get into a car with, with a driver who's been horrible to, to women in the past, right? So the mm-hmm. rating system is possibly a way to avoid that. But all those, all those things are totally available to the taxi industry too. There's no reason why uh, the regular cab industry can't have a pay on the app system. I know the checker here in Calgary has that. There's no reason why those rating systems can't be adopted. I think a lot of these cab companies they, just, they should just steal what Uber does well. I have a feeling, though, it's sometimes that the industry is kind of locked in this. This is how we've always done things, and we're not going to change it. I think the cab industry really needs to innovate. And Uber, as you I'm sure know, you know, is not doing well as a company. It's never made any money. It, what used to be cheaper rides are getting more and more expensive. The drivers are demanding like in a basic rights from Uber as an employer now. And they're getting them in some places. If you ask me what's going to happen between Uber and Caviar, I don't even know. I'm more interested in the guys behind the wheel than I am about you know, both the policies and the politics and the and the business side of things.
0: It is almost always guys, even though there have been attempts to have fleets of women driven ride sharing apps. I think you're right too that, that if there was a big distinction between the type of drivers, that distinction is, is rapidly disappearing. And and I can see this debate from, from both sides in that like as a passenger, I like paying less and I like a better experience. And that wins out in, in a lot of cases. And this was a broken kind of industry where people were kind of hostage to all kinds of weird arbitrary rules. And yeah, somebody came up with a better way of doing it. On the other hand, we've got issues around exploitation of the drivers. You've got issues around uh, safety of people, though though having GPS data is a pretty big thing when it comes to safety. But I know there've been incidents and issues with Uber safety. I'm more interested in like this one model, which as we've touched on, was a engine for newcomer entrepreneurship where you could actually own something and put your kids through college and you know maybe before you even master the language you can you can be a master of your domain and be somebody uh, in your cab versus a new system where not only is that equity that ownership erased but 25% of an entire industry in every market in Canada just got shipped offshore, or at least over the border. Like that's incredible. That's a massive shift for a quarter of one of the biggest kind of, you know, just practical meat and potatoes uh, types of, of commerce that we do. Twenty five percent of it is just, it just over to 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 the states to Uber's headquarters.
1: No, it's absolutely true. And if city governments like Toronto and Montreal have decided to change their their, their rules about about ride for hire where those investments, like you say, are no longer worth anything. You know, when it used to be in these big cities where your taxi license or your medallion or whatever it was called in the city that you live in, that increases in market value over the course of your career. Mm -hmm. Like in Toronto, where they actually say to you when they give you your give you give your license, this is your
3: retirement plan. This is your pension. When the taxi license was issued, the licensing commission said, congratulations, this is your pension. Well, the city of Toronto, by allowing Uber to uh, make inroads into my business, they robbed me of my pension. Right now, I have absolutely no income from my taxi business. And I doubt it very much if I will have anything in the near future.
1: And so in order to level the playing field as they claim, they'd they to, to dispense of all of this sort of stuff. That investment that you make is now unreliable.
0: So Marcello, the cabbie as an urban archetype, is that kind of over? Like it, is your book a, a eulogy?
1: Oh, I hope it isn't. That's a great question, I hope it isn't. I don't think it is, I don't think it is. I think the industry is driven to the edge of the cliff, but I think it's gonna slowly back away from that edge. If the pressures from outside, whether they're where the Ubers and Lyfts of the world or the, the government policies that are changing, um, I, I think I think cabbies are going to cabbies are going to survive. Um, I'm not sure, as we talked about, it's if it's going to be the best place for a new Canadian to earn a living anymore. I don't know what will take its place, though, but I think cabbies will be around. And I kind of hope so. You know, I've, I have this terrible habit, Jesse, of writing about people that I like. And I would hate to know that these characters that I had an opportunity to meet and spend some time with were no longer patrolling our streets.
0: All right. Thank you, Marcello. Hey,
1: Jesse, thank you so much.
0: That is your Canada Land for this week. If you like this podcast, our Shortcuts podcast, our articles, our other podcasts, Dear God, help us out. Uh, We make this stuff because people click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join and support us for five bucks a month. And we give you stuff in return. It takes a moment. Go do it. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadaland.com. We just posted our annual transparency report where you can find out what we do with the money that our supporters send us. Also, go subscribe to our politics show, The Backbench, because there is an election coming and keeping up to date about it doesn't have to suck. Listen to The Backbench. This episode was produced by Damalola Onome with Tristan Capicione. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support it.